This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt Shawley, bringing you the best of my times radio show you can listen live monday to friday 10 till 1 you can listen on your dab radio at home or in your car you can listen on your smart speaker or on the times radio app and don't tell anyone We've just got some listening figures, and we're the biggest show on Times Radio, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, Three hundred thousand people a week listen to the show, which is which is good. Uh, and you could, if if you're already one of them, lovely to have you aboard. If not, why not join us? Tell your friends, lovely stuff. Uh, coming up on today's episode, really enjoyed this. This is a chat about local newspapers. Some regular listeners will know I started out on local newspapers. Uh, but lots of them are bought up by big multinational companies. Well, there's now a rise of the hyper local including in print. Uh, we'll find out how they're making their sums add up in a digital world. That's our big thing today. In just a moment, we'll bring you the Columnist panel. But first, if you're listening to PMQs on the podcast yesterday, you might have heard uh, Keir Starmer mention uh, that he thought the government was doing the hokey-cokey, which gave me an idea. <laughs> One minute they're ruling it in, the next they're ruling it out. Then, thou, then, thou, shape it all about. Do the, the hokey-cokey, turn round. That's what it's all about. The hokey-cokey. The hokey-cokey, cokey-cokey. The hokey-cokey. Taking the knee, arms for stretch. Rub, rub, rub. It's not a proper job, this, is it? This is how I spend my mornings. Right, now then, it's time on a Thursday for the Columnist panel. No Indian night this week, so instead we had James Marriott and Martha Gill. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, that's up of the morning, where we always speak to two of our favourite columnists. No Indian night today. Uh, so instead of India, we've got Martha Gill. Morning, Martha. Morning. And in the studio, we've got James Marriott. Good morning. I should have worked out the part. Gill Gil at the Marriott. Gill uh, Ma- at the Marriott. I don't work, know. Gil. Well, M- Martha Gill's currently in my, in my bad books. Cause the last conversation I had with her, she compared me to a hedgehog. On here? Um, or in private? In, 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 in private, but I've now broadcast it to everyone, I suppose. Go on then, Martha, explain yourself. Why are you bullying James Marriott? <laughs> 
I happen to find hedgehogs uh, lovely creatures um, and they're very curious about the world. Uh, they have a sort of curious look to them. I, I find James's columns uh, very curious and open. Uh, he himself is sort of, uh, I'm sorry, he looks a little bit like a hedgehog, but in a lovely way. A love you look a like lovely a, hedgehog. A I, love- I, I I was telling my girlfriend about this, and she was like, "Yeah, you do look a bit like a, a hedgehog. bit of slight hedgehoggy. Um, yeah, it's, it's like snuffly. I think Snuff- it's the sort of the nose and the spiky hair. That's what my girlfriend. It's also said. the way that you always demand that before the show, before you come on the show, you have a um a, 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 a small yeah a small <laughs> plate of milk. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get into your eating habits because yes, we did that last never week before. and uh, it went viral. Uh, let's talk instead about the cost of living. Uh, uh, and and the, Martha, it seems like we're stuck in this sort of loop of people say something must be done. Government says we will do something. We're doing everything we can, but we will do more, but we can't tell you yet. Um, what, meanwhile, uh, people, are, you know, people are struggling right now. Yeah, exactly. There's this... Um, split in the Tory party lots of lots of Tories wanting to make the point that they really care about this and they're trying to get doing their best to get something done but then uh, Rishi Sunak um, who's becoming more and more embattled in this um, saying actually we can't do something right now although there are rumours that something might be on the way before recess in July um, <laughs> as there always are um, but this morning um, in the mail there was um uh, Jason Groves reported that that Treasury sources think the the char- say the Chancellor's uh, drawing up plans for a package for this summer. I mean, he has to do something. Are we uh, the the situation that a lot of people are finding themselves in. They can't last until the autumn budget. Um, uh, some of the sort of stories of people having to choose between eating or eating their home or having dentistry or eating. I mean, it's just awful. Um, and part of the problem, James, I think, and this is definitely a calculation that's going on in the Treasury right now, is that uh, if this is this is what people in government are telling me, if they announce something now uh, to try and alleviate the rising bills in the autumn, by the time they get to the rising bills in the autumn, they'll be called them to announce something else. And actually, you know, he Rishi Sunak spent was it nine billion pounds when he announced the stuff on energy bills and council tax earlier in the year, and everyone's almost immediately forgot about that. Yeah. Um... It's just, yeah, it's very depressing. Um, I sort of feel like um, it reminds me a bit of um, when I kind of first came to political awareness in the age of austerity and all the news on the radio just was kind of relentlessly grim and everything was getting worse. And I was like, God, politics is so bleak. And then, I mean, it hasn't really improved much since then, but it's a particular kind of um, depressing feeling that everything's going to get financially worse that has sort of um, descended again. And, and generationally, there's a weird, it's a weird thing, James. I mean, you're a young person. I'm sort a, of. I was a young person once. But anyone who basically, I mean, basically, millenni- well, definitely millennials, anyone who became an adult in this century, uh, hasn't experienced this before. Rising interest rates, soaring inflation. It's, it's just not something that, that, that a whole generation of people have had to worry about. Yeah, I mean, I sort of feel like we've experienced a lot of kind of horrible... We've, you know, had a... We haven't been lifetime. without. We haven't been without. No, uh, we've had a lot of horrible political experiences. Yeah. And I guess, you know, this is a new one. Um, when we thought, you know, when you, when you sort of thought things couldn't get any worse and you can't buy a house and um, everything seems to be going horribly wrong in lots of other ways. This is, this is a kind of... This is a novel one. Although... Um, I have. I think my advantage of being a millennial in this particular crisis is that my in my rental agreement my bills are included. So all this stuff about rising energy bills. Um, oh, that's very smart. Doesn't affect me. Although I um, imagine it just means I put your rent up. 
Well, actually, I hope my um, I hope my landlady's not listening. I think I pay very fair and decent uh, <laughs> decent rent. Um, but th- this could uh, this this sort of period we're going through actually, um, Martha, in the same way that you know, big defining moments as James has talked about. You know, since since the beginning of the twenty first century, whether you, you think of nine uh, eleven, the financial crash, uh, MPs' expenses, but all of those things have had an impact on politics. So this could have a major impact on on politics, couldn't it? And if the Conservatives do gain a reputation for not reacting uh, swiftly and comprehensively and empathetically, then that could have a lasting impact. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that this is likely to work in Labour's favour. I mean, I mean um, I, I'm not sure quite what you mean by lasting impact. Do you mean in terms of the next election or just... just sort of going forward into the future, the ideas that the Tories can't be trusted to react to a crisis. I think probably both are true. Um, If anything's going to push Boris out, um, it's going to be the cost of living crisis um, because that's something that the voters can't help but be focused on. While other scandals kind of might excite everyone for a while while they're in the papers and then maybe float out of your mind, your bill's coming in all the time and the government's failure to uh, react to that is, is something which tends to stick in the mind. Yeah, and and uh, but do you think there's... I don't know, James, were you watching PMQ yesterday? I was not. Oh, Sorry. You were listening to it on Times Radio, presumably. <laughs> I, was writing, I was writing my column uh, yesterday, course, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it does feel a bit like Labour aren't quite... I don't know what it is. I got criticism yesterday for, for saying uh, this. There's something about Labour's response or the way that Keir Starmer's approaching it. it it's not quite electrifying the public. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with these kind of economic issues, as you say, they're kind of so relentless and so underlying. And, uh, you know, all these kind of political models that say the only factor you need to watch to predict elections is, is you know, is the economy. And I almost think it's one of those things where it doesn't really matter what your response is. It's so punishing for a government to be in a situation like this. Um, I mean, was it the seventies the last time we had this kind of, yeah. this kind of, um, this kind of, inf- um, this kind of inflation and that, you know, that was like, you know, that was just so politically toxic that you don't necessarily, I think need some sort of jazzy, p- brilliant PR response to it. I just think you can kind of sit, I mean, obviously it's not the ideal political strategy, but I think you can sort of sit back and just watch it, just punish the government because it affects everybody all the time in the most horrible way that people just do not want to be affected by. And, you know, that's the kind of baseline of what people want their politicians to do, which is to, you know, give them sort of safe and, you know, reasonably prosperous lives and they can feel like things are getting better. And this, you know, when living standards are just being eroded, that's just, I think it's just so kind of toxic for government. Although, is it, Martha, Ed Miliband basically tried the same strategy, didn't he? He spent five years essentially tutting and saying, have you seen the price of that? Um, and, <laughs> and it didn't work. You know, sitting back and thinking... Uh, you know, I'm not saying it won't work this time, but if you just think, oh, eventually everyone will realise the Tories are awful, uh, that might not happen. Yeah, yeah, it might not. I mean, I think um, the sort of consensus, the fashionable thing to say about about the next election is that Labour is underpriced and that um, and, and that, that it's that Labour is in a better position than we think uh but yes uh, sort of logic tells you that 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 basically what Keir Starmer should be doing is coming up with um a compelling um reason why people should trust him more um on the cost of living crisis 
than the Tories, that he has a plan to deal with these things. Because, of course, what the, the Tories are saying is that it, this is basically out of our control. It's something that's happening on a global level. It's something that uh, we're doing our very best uh, to deal with, um, but uh, it's not caused by us. And I think Labour should be doing more to say that actually we're more in control of this than we think. Um, this is all down to decisions made by the Tories. And, and look, here are some here are some things we would do um, if we were in power. Although, of course, quite a lot of it is due to global forces outside anyone's control. So that's maybe quite hard to do. Um, James, let's, uh, as, as, you do, as you weren't watching PMQ yesterday, let's talk about what you were doing instead, which is right in your column. Yes. About Twitter rows. Yes, exactly. One of the things that sort of always, um, I guess, is kind of this is one of my kind of regular beats as to like social media culture wars and stuff. And one of the things that always sort of irritates me is this kind of, I think, this slightly sort of wishful thinking attitude that I see cropping up sort of reasonably often, which is people saying, oh, Twitter doesn't matter. Twitter isn't real life. We should all just ignore Twitter. Correct. Uh, it's completely irrelevant. Yep. Uh, which I profoundly wish was true, but I think, <laughs> but I think, I think, I think is not true. And um, I guess I was particularly fascinated by there was a new study from King's College London that came out last week about public awareness of uh, terms like cancel culture and woke, and it sort of shot up over the last two years. It's you know well over the majority of the public have now heard of those terms, have views about them, and I was just thinking. Four or five years ago, this was like the most minor, insane, stupid argument confined to a few people on Twitter. And it's now everywhere. You know, it's sort of um, this stuff is kind of being argued about in corporations. It's being argued about, um, you know, in mainstream politics. And it just I thought it was further evidence for my my sort of depressing thesis, which is that I think, unfortunately, all these things that seem to be happening in these kind of rarefied circles among inverted commas, cultural elites on Twitter eventually trickle down through society. Um, my argument is because they're kind of these views acquire this kind of prestigious association with people at the top. People kind of want to take them on because they seem prestigious, and then suddenly we're all talking about it. And I really, really wish that Twitter didn't matter because I, I, I hate Twitter and it's often been unkind to me. But unfortunately, I think I, I really think it does, and I think it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, that we have to Martha, care about it. Martha, where are you on the does Twitter matter? <laughs> I mean, I'm more one that I spend too much time on it. I post on it too often. But I do also know that if you turn it off and walk away from it, there are a whole load of people who just aren't on it and have no idea what, what the people who are on it are blathering on about. Well, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed James's comment. It's very good. I, I wonder whether it's all our fault, though, as journalists. We, 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 it, if we didn't report what was happening in Twitter, it wouldn't seem like an elite, uh, something important enough to um, report on and therefore an elite view. I mean, if, if, if this small group of elites on Twitter are talking amongst themselves and most people don't know about it. Isn't it our fault? Is the media taking them too seriously? I don't know. Uh, we've just had some breaking news. I've been used to breaking news. Uh, the Metropolitan Police has said they've now concluded their investigations into Partygate. Uh, they've made 126 referrals for fines in total. 53 were men, 73 were women. Some received more than one fine. Obviously, what we don't know from that is, because uh, people have been asking the question constantly, as to whether or not Boris Johnson's received any other uh, fines. Uh, it, it, presumably not from that. Apparently, the total cost of this was £460,000. £460, so it's over, James. Amazingly, I know it's sort of, I kind of, it's just dragged on for so long now, and it almost seems like, it's sort of, when it, when it, when it, when it sort of all kicked off, it was kind of being consumed by 
Ukraine, which was kind of, um, I guess, thought to be a positive thing for government. Now it sort of seems to be being consumed by the cost of living crisis, which is kind of a more of a more of a negative thing. I don't know whether it sort of rolls together into one huge crisis or it's kind of yesterday's news and people now just sort of more worried about the economy. Um, uh, so it was eight, eight gatherings in Downing Street uh, have um, uh, had fines issued for them. Um, it's a slightly strange thing this month, isn't it? Because it's now it's now in the slightly, slightly strange thing. It's it's Keir Starmer who's got a police investigation hanging over him. Yeah, I mean, that is uh, I, I, it's it's strange, isn't it? That the that basically now that, that Keir, what happens to him about this fine for something that see when you put it next to the sort of rolling parties that were going on at the height of lockdown in Downing Street it seems quite minor, but because um he'll be seen as more of a hypocrite if he is fined or if he is is found to have done anything but not fined um then uh then that might completely sink his career in fact it will because he's promised to resign he's promised to resign um, I, mean, I, suppose, that, that, I suppose the thing is we should we should just sort of pause and reflect on this given that what everyone went through during uh the pandemic the uh, met have issued 126 fines uh, into rule breaking in Downing Street and Whitehall during the pandemic. 126, that's 53 for men, 73 for women, uh, covering eight different events. I don't think there's more than one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, it's eight, eight events from May 2020 until April 2021. Of course, James, the other thing this means is we're going to finally get the Sue Gray report. Yes, yeah. I, I just think <laughs> the other sort of, I think the other thing is it's a kind of just sort of slightly depressing but also amazing testament to the kind of boris johnson political strategy of just like drag everything out you know obfuscate um seem to be making everything worse and sort of digging yourself further into the mud and it's drags and drags and drags and drags and drags and then sort of suddenly it's over whether the sue gray report will will change that i guess is the kind of big question i sort of suspect i don't know boris johnson's ability to survive just seems kind of extraordinary to me and i suspect he'll take the same approach uh, Helen Ball, uh, acting deputy commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, uh, said there's no doubt the pandemic impacted all of us in so many ways and strong feelings and opinions have been expressed on this particular issue. Uh, she's not wrong. Uh, she goes on to say that having received the information, uh, they decided it was enough uh, uh, to reach the criteria to begin an investigation. She adds, our investigation was thorough and impartial and was completed as quickly as we could, given the amount of information that was needed to be reviewed and the importance of ensuring we had strong evidence for each FPN or fixed penalty notice referral. The investigation is now complete. So that's uh, breaking news just in the last few minutes. 126 fixed penalty notices have now been issued for Partygate, uh, for the Partygate investigation in uh, Downing Street. Uh, obviously, we await this separate Durham police investigation to, uh, into Keir Starmer's beer and curry. But uh, <laughs> uh, we await now. Now we can begin the big countdown of when do we get the Sue Gray report. Martha Gill and James Marriott, then of course you can read James in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, extra, extra, read all about it. It's hyperlocal newspapers. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, extra, extra, read all about it. Did you think newspapers were dead? Well, you're wrong. They're back, particularly ultra-local newspapers. Uh, we are seeing more and more local, really very local uh, newspapers appearing right across the country. Some of the big heritage brands, the newspapers have been around for a long time, local newspapers, regional newspapers, been bought up by big companies like Reach, PLC and NewsQuest. And some of them have gone online only or disappeared altogether. And some of those gaps are being filled by ultra-local newspapers. Uh, often not making huge amounts of money, but just enough to, to wash their face. Uh, often covering, you know, maybe a small town, a village and neighbourhoods, just a postcode even. And according to the Independent Community News Network, there are now 250 local newspapers, hyper-locals, across the country. Publishing the sort of stuff you won't get anywhere else. What's going on in the parish council? Somebody trying to sell something. That cafe down the road just opened. Local teachers at the school has won an award. That's the stuff you don't get elsewhere. So what we thought we'd do today is turn a spotlight on some of those people who seem to be making a success of hyper-local news and how they're bucking the trend. Let's speak to now, uh, she's been on the show before, but it's nice to have her back. Francesca Evans is the editor of Lime Online in Lime Readers. Hi, Francesca. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me back. It's nice to have you back. I mean, sadly, we're not sitting in the sunshine in Lime Readers this morning when we last, uh, when we yeah, last it's spoke. Sunday, though, and it's very nice and sunny again today. <laughs> and just remind us, Lime Online, or it's called Lime Online, exists as a printed newspaper. Give us a, a, a quick potted history of, of how Lime Online came about, how many you, you print, what's the, 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 sell it to us. Uh, so Lime Online uh, was launched in January 2018. We start, we launched the website first and then a month later we launched a free fortnightly printed newspaper. Um, as we recognise there was still definitely um, a need for a newspaper, a want for a newspaper um, here in Lime Regis. Um, uh, it has a distribution of about 4,000 uh, in, in Lime Regis itself and surrounding towns and villages. And it's uh, it's very popular. It is. It's very, I, and I know that because uh, as you know, I'm a regular regular in Lime Regis. Uh, okay, stay there, Francesca. Let's speak now to uh, Yoshi Herman, who's the editor of the Manchester Mill, covering the Greater Manchester area. Hi, hi, Yoshi. Um, tell us about the Manchester Mill. Yeah, we've been going for two years now, uh, covering the whole of Greater Manchester. So maybe not as um, hyper local as, as some of your other guests on the show. 
but very, very small, as you say, small operation. Um, we've currently got three full-time members of staff. And yeah, we're trying to do a different type of journalism, uh, a bit more in depth, maybe instead of doing lots and lots of stories every day, which we can't do with a small operation, you'd pick a few every week that you think are really important and, and you do those in depth. So it's a different way of doing local news. Um, it's all done by email, via newsletter. So the costs are really low. Um, we really have a, a big focus on like good writing and good quality uh, reporting. And so far, um, yeah, there's been a really good response to that. So it's, is it, does it exist in a newspaper form? Do you print it's it? Exist, it's printed once. So we, we did a one-off print edition at the end of last year. We kind of printed a lot of our favourite stories. A really big, chunky print edition uh, went out to 15,000 households in Greater Manchester. But the, 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 the real production of it, the day-to-day way in which people get it, is in an email newsletter, um, reading all the words in the email so you don't have to click anywhere. Yeah. And as I say, focusing on like a much smaller number of stories because obviously it's not feasible to do as many as a like a, a Manchester Evening News or a Liverpool Echo. Okay, that's the, that's the Manchester Mill. Uh, let's now speak to Phyllis Stevens, the founder of the Edinburgh Reporter. Hi, Phyllis. Hi, good morning, Matt. Uh, so tell us about the Edinburgh Reporter. The Edinburgh Reporter has is the oldest, I think, among us all today. Uh, we've been going for more than a decade, mainly online. Uh, but for the last three years, we've been uh, producing a, a regular monthly free newspaper and now we're producing uh, 6,000. Edinburgh is the capital city of Scotland as I'm sure you're aware (laughs) and we have uh, 500,000 people living here. So our paper goes out um, in physical form and um, but it also uh, goes out as a PDF or um, you know people can read it otherwise digitally and there's our latest copy just it's all very (laughs) colorful 24 pages and we're wholly dependent on advertising that's probably where we're going to have to start speaking aren't we well yes we'll talk we'll talk about that in a sec i'm I'm interested that you went from being digital to then producing a print edition when actually so many other uh publications have gone in the opposite direction what was it about a printed edition you thought it's, added to what you were doing it's physical it, it was really just to put down um put down a marker that actually we'd achieved something and done something and I wanted something I could you know hold in my hand and and show to people um so that was really why and actually I think I don't know what the others think but I believe that having a physical copy actually uh, focuses advertisers minds on what they can get if you say to them you can have page 23 by the fold and it's a quarter page and they're happy with that so um whereas if you offer them an online space where you can track numbers tell them exactly who's looking at their advert um that seems to be a little bit too technical for some people not everybody is that your experience as well francesca they're actually as some of the uh, you know long-standing local newspapers bought up by uh, big national companies, you know, looking for saving, you know, what they're really looking for, particularly online, is big brands taking out lots of adverts. They can fire at lots of eyeballs. And actually, if you're a, I don't know, a pub or an independent shop or a you know small business or a plumber or a decorator or something like that, you're you know they're just not interested in taking. The advertising money from them is that is that is that where you feel that there's sort of a niche for you that you're you're picking up those um, local advertisers who just want to reach people in line readers. Uh, yeah, definitely. Almost all of our advertising comes from people that you just said, like pubs, hotels, 
local tradespeople in our local services section and almost all of our advertising comes through our printed edition rather than online um, and yeah, I agree with Phyllis like people like the idea of oh I can get a quarter page can I have an early right hand page um, they just I think they just can uh, visualize it better than just a space on a website. And I suppose and it's that sort of thing where it has some shelf life and you can see it in front of, uh, you know, you can, they, they'll have it on their, on their tables. And Yoshi, how does it work with you? Your, how, how do you make money, I suppose? I'm, that's, the, that's the key question. Yeah, we've come from a completely different direction from Phyllis. We've always had subscriptions as our main thing. So almost all of our revenue comes from um, our, our most dedicated readers giving us a, a monthly subscription to get more effectively. So if you want to get all of our journalism, you pay £7 a month. Um, and we've got more than a thousand people doing that in Manchester. We've also got a, um, a sister newsletter in Sheffield and another one in Liverpool. And they've also got hundreds of, of paying subscribers. So we're starting to do the odd sponsorship where someone will give us a bit of money, local business who wants to reach our audience but we've kind of started with subscriptions we think that will always be our main thing and we like how that works and then we'll we'll build in some other revenue streams so we're not entirely um dependent on that one and and what's the sort of um in, sort of journalistically editorially and any of you can come in on this what is it that you think you can you you manage to do what are the holes that you're plugging that some of the the bigger groups don't quite manage anyone can come in on that we, we're um, speaking to people on the street and we're speaking to um, you know, all the big national polit- politicians as well. But I guess, you know, our news has to have a real Edinburgh hook. That's always the, the, the big ask of any story. So we're not just turning out, um, you know, press release after press release, which we know the big boys are doing. Um, it doesn't take much. You look at your inbox and you look at the what's produced in local newspapers you know where it's come from so I think uh, we perhaps give um, a slightly you know different local angle and I can give you an example for example um, we're producing our um, our next month's paper right now and there's been somebody very notable who has died and so rather than doing um, a straightforward obituary which everybody else has done uh, what we've done is we're speaking to people who really knew him and um, who, so we're amalgamating, you know, little anecdotes about this person rather than just, you know, born, lived, died, whatever. And uh, so that that's it's a different angle, and it's about knowing people and having contact. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd really echo that too. I think people are pretty sick of seeing their local newspapers just full of, um, you know, full of press releases, full of rewrites from from the police and i think a nice thing that we can do in this day and age is to bring back some of the sort of softer elements that have been lost in local news you know your reviews your features your interviews where you really hear from real people i think that's been a that's been a huge part of our success i would agree as well um i think ultimately it comes down to trust and relevance so people come to us for reliable locally relevant content we don't have any clickbait we don't have any content and our website or in our newspaper that is not relevant to people that live, work or visit here. Um, And I think that trust as well comes from just being active in our community. Um, I'm usually the only reporter that goes to council meetings or attends and covers events and people know us, they recognise us there, they expect us to be there. They know when they call up the office that I'm going to be answering the phone. So I think that helps to build trust and uh, 
they, they, they come to our site for that. And I think that um, the demand for that was um, was really shown during during the pandemic. We've had so many messages from people uh, today saying uh, somebody's texting saying the leveller in Somerset is the best free local newspaper I've ever read. It's very politically aware with in-depth informed articles covering both local and national issues. Circulation 13,000 brackets, according to them. Somebody else says try the hyper-local, the good life Surbiton, publishing hard copy online. Uh, somewhat, uh, David says, I set up Altrincham uh, today, eight years ago, as a way of answering all the local questions the established local paper wasn't. We now get 200,000 unique users a month online and our print magazine is into its sixth year. What's more, it's profitable and trusted. Reaching the big regional publishers have delocalised and pursued an increasingly national and click-based strategy, which creates an incredible opportunity for smaller publishers who actually live on their patch. There's still a huge demand for relevant local news about the things that impact people's lives. New shopping, restaurant openings, local planning applications, so on. I suppose one of the other interesting things is technology now. Uh, I mean, I would risk of sounding like a very old fart. When I started working at the Talton Times uh, 20 years ago, uh, you know, there was a website. Somebody uploaded six stories. It took him most of the day. He did it once a week. It was incredibly complicated. Um, you know, and we sat at computers and it was all connected on a big network and it was all sent off to Bristol and then, you know, 36 hours later, the paper appeared and all that. Technology, you could basically do everything, can't you? I mean, I know, Francesca, we've spoken before. You, you, I mean, you literally do everything from writing it, laying it out to then, you know, delivering it, the paper out the boot of your car. But technology has meant that you don't need huge numbers of teams. And it's actually quite, you know, the production costs have, uh, have come down massively. Uh, yeah, definitely. As you said, do everything from um, yeah, going to events, as I mentioned, writing them up, laying out the pages, sending them to the printers. Uh, we don't actually print them ourselves. We don't have a printing press. That's the only thing we don't do. Um, and then delivering them uh, ourselves and uh, doing all the social media on top of that as well. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. lot of, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Um, y- Yoshi, you talked about trying to cover the stories which aren't been covered by others. I mean, one of the for me, one of the really important things for sort of local news is covering those, you know, council decisions, court cases, hold it, holding local people to account in a way that national people do with national figures. Is that something that you feel that you're able to do? You know, because actually sometimes this stuff is important. It can be quite hard work and doesn't always yield huge results. As a result, you're probably not doing it if you're chasing, you know, if you're a big website chasing clicks. Is that, is that, do you feel like that's a hole that you're plugging? I think that's a hole that's partly been plugged by a scheme called the Local Democracy Reporting Scheme, which is where licence-free money goes towards funding journalists who are attached to newspapers. Normally, newspapers are owned by Reach PLC, like Manchester Evening News or Liverpool Echo. And those, local, those journalists, their whole job is to go to council meetings, to attend NHS boards, to do that kind of public interest stuff. I think where we come in is to try and interpret some of that reporting a little bit more. So instead of us trying to go to every council meeting, which we wouldn't be able to do, we try and pick out a few stories every month that we think people really should know about. An example is this weekend, we published a a really long read, like 5,000 word piece about what is happening in Oldham specifically, where Labour's been doing really badly in recent years, where there's a very interesting like online dynamic to do with conspiracy theories to do with people, accusations about grooming gangs and all that kind of thing. So we published, you know, for our readers across Greater Manchester, we published a really long in-depth piece about that that's taken ages to pull together. So I think maybe we see our role as more the sort of insight analysis and going really deep on specific council stories or local politics stories. And we leave the kind of day-to-day coverage of it to these local democracy reporters who are funded by all of us as licensed free payers and who do a good job of just 
saying what exactly was said by whom in which meeting. Yeah, and I, I suppose it's sort of joy, that key thing of joy, why, why does this matter? Uh, drawing that together, drawing together those themes and, and bringing that insight is really important. And actually, like you said, doing one or two things really well is, I think, you know, it's more satisfying for the reader than this sort of just splurge of everything. Uh, listen, yeah, I think, I think that's right. It's been really good to speak to you all. Uh, best of luck with it. Uh, with it. Uh, that was uh, Yoshi Herman, who's the editor of the Manchester Mill, uh, Phyllis Stevens, the founder of the Edinburgh Reporter, and Francesca Evans, the editor of Lime Online, down in Lime Readers. I'm looking for, we're going back. We're going back on our holidays for the fourth time in a year. We're going back to Lime Readers. So I look forward to being back uh, in July for that. Uh, right, uh, still to come, we will continue our conversation about the rise of hyperlocal uh, papers and whether or not they are you know, financially viable and what it means uh, for journalists. Uh, just to bring you uh, an update on that breaking news we've been covering uh, all morning. Uh, what was it, about half an hour? No, about an hour ago now, we got the news that uh, the um, uh, Metropolitan Police had said they'd now completed uh, their investigations into the Partygate fines. Uh, 126 uh, fines have been issued. Uh, number 10 are saying in the last uh, few minutes that Boris Johnson has not received any more fines at this stage, although they've suggested it can take a few days for fixed penalty notices to come f- through. Of course, you remember uh, he's so far uh, been fined for just one event on the 19th of June 2020, the birthday cake, uh, when he was present at uh, another six of the 12 under investigation. Um, so it's not clear, actually, whether or not um, uh, he has been fined for more. Once again, the Met communications on this, bit odd. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say that they say they finished their work on it, but uh, the people who may or may not have received those fines they're talking about uh, may or may not have yet received them. Newspapers are back. That's what we're saying this morning. The rise of the hyper-local newspaper. Well, let's turn our attention now to uh, some of the industry bodies which which represent uh, newspapers. Try and get a picture of what's happening across the country. The Independent Community News Network uh, uh, supports 122 hyper-local community news outlets across the UK. Matt Abbott's the Deputy Director. Morning, Matt. Morning, Matt. Thanks for having me. No, it's nice to have you with us. We've also got Owen Meredith, who's the Chief Executive of the News Media Association. Hi, Owen. Hi, Matt. And Michelle Stanistreet is the General Secretary of the National Union of Journalists. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Matt. Um, Owen, uh, just explain for us, first of all, News Media Association, who who do you represent? Uh, The News Media uh, Association represents both local, regional and national publishers, covering about 900 titles across the whole of the UK. And just give us a sense of what's been happening, uh, I don't know, over the last decade, two decades um, in terms of the fluctuations of titles, where they've been, you know, it, it feels to me from what I've, I've seen, particularly regional papers, which is, I've worked on some of them as well, um, have really suffered, but actually national and very local have done better. Is that a, is that a, a fair characterization? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, I think if you look at, uh, if you look at audience data, there's been huge growth. Obviously, digital over the last decade and more has presented huge opportunity for um, publishers, local journalists in particular, to reach uh, a wider audience. And obviously, uh, there is a huge interconnectivity between uh, local journalism and national journalism as well. You will know, Matt, from uh, your time on local papers. Uh, you know, sometimes the best stories uh, break first with local journalists uh, and then elevate and become big national stories. Um, so there has been 
undoubtedly significant challenge as the digital environment uh, is much harder for people to monetize that quality journalism uh, in the same way. Um, but I think the industry broadly is optimistic. I think um, people in society recognize the importance uh, of journalism, of quality journalism. Uh, and actually really in a world of mis and disinformation online, never has it been more important that we support our local papers yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, uh, you know, like try to get news from trusted sources. Matt, tell me about the Independent Community uh, News Network. And uh, 250 hyper-locals was the, the figure that we were using. That that stri- strikes me as a lot. How does that, is that, is this a sort of new phenomenon? Uh, thanks again, Matt. Um, it's not necessarily a new phenomenon. The idea of the rise of hyper-locals is, is something that, um, that, it's, it's slightly incorrect. It's been happening. It's been probably happening for about 20 to 25 years. There's been um, hyperlocals around for that amount of time. We've been celebrating some birthdays recently, 15 years for some publications, 10 years for others. Um, but that figure of 250, that kind of incorporates the whole gamut of news. So it can be anything from a very small parish newsletter to publications that are um, focused on lifestyle, arts and culture, but then also some of the more kind of public interest news uh, publications like the Limes Online or, or, or Edinburgh Reporter or, or, for example, like Joshy Mills, yeah. Joshy uh, Herman's The Manchester Mill. And um, are these making money? What's the sort, of, um, the, the sort of financial basis of them? Are they sort of more not-for-profits or, or things we run as charities? Is, is the sort of financial model of these papers shifted? It's interesting that you should mention charities there because one of our members is, is currently trying to get charitable status um, uh, so that it can uh, take advantage of certain tax exemptions and things like that from, from governments and also to be more secure within its community. But the majority of these organisations, they are struggling financially. It's a difficult model to monetize, um, which is why there are so many different models within the, within the sector. You have the organisations like, like Josh's, which is a subscription model, the Bristol Cable, which is a membership model. You have organisations which run uh, basic AdSense. You've got print-first publications, which, like Phil has said, a lot of people find that that's a better option financially to have a print print product because it, it can get more advertising uh, from the local area. Um, some publications are, self, are self-funded. Some are hobbyist publications, but no less professional and, 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 and quality in their, in their output. So there is a there is a real diversity within the sector when it comes to um, uh, revenue streams. Uh, just, let's uh, let's bring in Michelle. Michelle, this is uh, is this a good time to be a journalist? Having having sort of, I remember when I started out twenty years ago. Um, I was always oh, a terrible time. Why are you doing this? This is this is an industry which is which is dying. You know, newspapers are closing. Ha- has that turned around? Are, are we seeing more journalism jobs? Happily, we are starting to see an increase in journalist jobs just recently, I think. I mean, in many ways, it's always a brilliant time to be a journalist, isn't it? As you say, it's a fantastic job. So I would always encourage people to make it their career of choice. But it's also true that it's been a really challenging period in terms of the economics of the industry and in over recent years that's meant an awful lot of restructures and job losses and challenges particularly for our freelance members we have you know many thousands of freelance members in the NUJ who work right across um, local news particularly and you know opportunities for them have been thin on the ground in recent years so that there are lots of challenges to the industry that I think we need to step back and be more proactive about how we can support it because the undeniable fact is that local journalism is incredibly important it underpins 
our democracy and it's an industry that we should be looking at how can we make it thrive more how can we better support it and what's the um uh are they do you have any concerns i mean particularly it's great if these these publications are popping up but they're sort of very small not making huge amounts of money is there a risk that young wannabe journalists end up working for not very much if anything just to try and get that break into into paper because there's a balance to be struggling you completely understand there's not look matters of money it's a good thing if a local hyper local paper exists but equally you don't want young people trying to get a break being ripped up being sort of exploited well, absolutely. We don't, we, you know, the NUJ doesn't want journalists anywhere being exploited, particularly at that outset of their career. And we, we did a lot of campaigning to clamp down on unpaid internships, for example, um, in recent years, which were becoming quite the scourge. I, I, I mean, whether, it, whether or not you're working in a hyperlocal entity or whether you're working for one of the major newspaper groups, you know, there are real challenges about levels of pay and the nature of the conditions that you're working in. But I think the the vibrancy that the growth and acceleration in hyperlocals and you know new startups in the industry is so valuable. It's injected quite a lot of vibrancy into a sector that was ailing, and in in many ways, the kind of increasing consolidation in the industry between all of the big players have. Uh, been a problem in the job losses that we've seen yeah. and the lack of opportunities. So I think plurality in the sector is really to be welcomed. We went, we want lots more entities, whether they're the big players or whether they're smaller ones or whether they're freelance setups or co-ops. I mean, these are things to be encouraged. And I think that's why the investment and support that could come in a range of different ways, whether that's tax perks, you know, uh, funding from central government, startup loans, opportunities for training and business development. These are ways in which those entities could be supported and put them in a better financial footing so that they can be paying decent rates of pay and making sure that their conditions are what we would want them to be. Here, here, here. Pay journalists properly. That's a, camp- that's a campaign we can all get behind. Michelle, really good to speak to you. Michelle Stanistry, General Secretary of the National Union of uh, Journalists. We also heard from Owen Meredith from the News Media Association and Matt Abbott from the Independent Community News Network. Really interesting this, and lots of you have been getting in touch about the uh, local newspapers near you and how you value them and, and how they're doing well, which can only be a good thing. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.